This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to The Russell Moore Show. And here at The Russell Moore Show, we bring you conversations to help you navigate Christian faith in confusing times. And through the next several weeks, we've highlighted some specific conversations that revolve around themes in Russell Moore's newest book, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. It's a book that Publishers Weekly says will buoy disillusioned hearts and minds. Losing Our Religion is available now wherever you buy your books. So if you're feeling disillusioned and looking for clear-eyed gospel hope, we hope you enjoy these upcoming conversations. And today, Russell sits down with Karen Swallow Pryor. She's the author of The Evangelical Imagination, and you'll find a ton of crossovers between Karen Pryor's work and Russell Moore's. To whet your appetite, listen in to this little bit from Losing Our Religion. Russell writes, We are now seeing young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. And more than that, many have concluded that the church itself is a moral problem. Well, what can be done? Listen in to this conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor as Russell and Karen chat about what does it look like to retrieve and leave parts of an evangelical imagination. 
I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Have with us on the show today, Karen Swallow Pryor, the notorious KSP, who has written a fascinating new book called The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. It's a really interesting book, and it's it's wide-ranging. It goes through a, a lot of different things that explain the church situation, but also the broader sort of cultural situation as well. Karen, welcome to the Russell Moore Show. It's great to be with you, Ross. Thank you. I was having some audio problems here. I remember once when you were at an event of ours, I believe in Nashville, you were literally hit by a bus. So I hope that uh, it's not a, a curse on on our conversation. <laughs> I, I yeah, I hope it's I I hope the curse breaks one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I remember telling uh, someone about that after you were okay and everything, and it came a point where I had to say, no, I, I'm not saying metaphorically. I'm saying <laughs> she was genuinely hit by a physical bus and survived and no worse for wear. Uh, Karen, in this book, I want to go through several things that you talk about, but Close to the end, you say that you were having a conversation with a disillusioned evangelical, and the person asked you, people ask me all the time, why are you still a Christian? How are you still a Christian? And your answer was really interesting to me because you said that you're not sure you would be if you had grown up after you did in terms of the Christian culture. And I wondered about that because I thought, you know, I remember 1980s evangelicalism uh, with the chick tracks, which you uh, mentioned. I also had the fear of having my whole life shown as a movie to, to everyone. Hal Lindsey books and prophecy uh, conferences, Carmen you know, uh, th- there were all kinds of things going on in 80s evangelicalism, too. So so why do you think it would be different for you later? I mean, we're really digging into the heart of it here. And this is, yeah, I mean, my book is about 300 years of evangelical history, but that history is what brought us to this moment in yeah. history. And, you know, I'm old enough even though I was exposed to those things in the evangelical, what was then a subculture, I think really now it is more than a subculture. I was exposed to those things, but that wasn't my world. I mean, I wasn't brought up within purity culture. I wasn't brought up to think that I had to, you know, follow this certain formula or I wasn't a good Christian. I was surrounded by good Christian parents, had wonderful pastors in small rural churches, didn't like youth group, but that was optional. Uh, And so it wasn't until, you know, well, I, I think we all lived through this moment. I lived through it as a professor teaching young people who had grown up in this very legalistic subculture that tied the culture to Christianity in a way that didn't distinguish between the two. And I understand their disillusionment. I understand their deconstruction because so much of what is cultural has been presented to them as Christian. And when they discover that there's a difference, they think it's all a lie. Yeah. How, how, how did your parents know 
not to veer into that sort of uh, legalism and authoritarianism, do you think? Well, that, you know, that's a really good question that I haven't thought about. Now, they became committed Christians when I was a child, when I was a young child. So even though, you know, they both grew up in New England, my father's family was more secular, agnostic, not religious. And my mother grew up in sort of old time Methodist churches, a Methodist church. It's still there, actually, in rural Maine. And But they came to a serious faith commitment when I was already a small child And I think that for them, their faith was real, too. It wasn't cultural. And so they just, you know, didn't have any reason to enculturate me in that. We just had our Christian faith and our work and our community, and we just weren't part of that culture. And, of course, the evangelical industrial complex wasn't around. The the media wasn't as pervasive. And so we were really just sort of living in our real communities and our real church and, and, and weren't marketed to the way Christians are today. Yeah, I, I think you may have been in a, a more idyllic place than I was because I, w- I was marketed to plenty <laughs> during, the, uh, during the 1980s. But I do think some things have shifted. I'm going to get into language and metaphors and, and several other stories, several other issues. But what do you say to people who would say, well, evangelicalism has always just been a prop for misogyny, racism, militarism, that's what it is. Uh, And it has always been simply that. Mm. And the the theology is just a a front. The subculture is just a front. What would you say to somebody who's come to that conclusion? Well, I would say two things, and two things can be true. I would say that a lot of that thinking and that idea fails to recognize that the evangelical movement goes back 300 years, that it began in 18th century England as the evangelical revival and as the Great Awakening in America. And its impetus was very much other things that many church historians have have talked about, I talk about in the introduction to my book. Yet, in as much as 18th century England and 18th century America were misogynistic and racist as cultures, as societies, then evangelicalism did not necessarily or very well distinguish itself from the culture. Um, So it arose in a culture that was those things, but the origins were very much about specific expressions of Christianity, beliefs about the Bible, beliefs about activism, and beliefs about, you know, the centrality of of Christ's crucifixion um, alongside those other things. I laughed at one point while reading your book because it seemed that you and I had come kind of independently to the same conclusion. I don't know if you did so consciously or or not, but the Wesleys mattered a lot more than I previously thought. Not, uh, Not that I ever thought that John and Charles Wesley were insignificant, but there really was something extraordinary happening at that time. And, and you seem to bring that out uh, quite a bit in the book. I think that what I bring to this discussion, sort of for our people, our community, whoever they are, is that most people in our circles, I think, are more familiar with 
if they're familiar with history at all, it's American history and the history of American evangelicalism. I actually come to it from my study and my doctoral studies of British evangelicalism. So going all the way back to my dissertation on Hannah Moore, the abolitionist uh, and evangelical that I wrote a book about a few years ago. I mean, that's how I encountered what evangelicalism was then uh, and discovered the Wesleys and their significance. And so I think it's just a little bit of a blind spot that we have as Americans that we we just tend to focus on the American history of evangelicalism. Um, but the Wesleys were really important and the Wesleys were, were abolitionists and they were sort of renegades and they are a whole other stream of evangelicalism that I think that uh, we've neglected. Yeah, and one of the things that you talk about quite a bit in this book, and I agree with you completely, is about the significance and importance of metaphors mm -hmm. and, and the way they sort of subconsciously work their way through us and change the way that we see uh, everything. Uh, what sorts of metaphors would you say are kind of unconsciously accepted by the church right now and used by the church in ways that, that might have changed us. Mm. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, I, I, all of my chapters are devoted to different ones, but they tend to be those that are more historical. The one that I think that I cover in the book, and then maybe I'll cover one that I don't uh, mention in the book that the, your question prompts is empire, mm. which is a really big topic. And, and, you know, of course, Part of my premise in the book is that all language is metaphorical, right? So even something that we can say is actually literally true and good, like conversion, that is biblical and we must be converted. There's also, there are layers to that word that are metaphorical. And so they all sort of go together so that even when we're thinking about what we mean by literal conversion, there's an effect that the metaphors have on how we think of that. In the case of empire, um, uh, you know, I, I come to this party kind of late because I know lots of other thinkers and writers and historians and sociologists have talked about these things. But coming from the inside and looking at it a little bit more from the outside in researching this book, I, I did not really put together how connected 19th century colonialism by the British Empire, which was brought about by evangelicalism, is rooted in our thinking about empire and control and power today, and that in many ways, the empires of the megachurches and the publishing industry, I mean, you know, you and I are part of it, I'm not putting it all down, um, right. but these empires that have come to define contemporary evangelicalism, they're not just products of late 19th century and early 20th century entrepreneurship. They actually go all the way back to the empires that were built by the British across Europe and in Africa, in America, and they are our heritage. And we might not, you know, we might not conquer lands still today as evangelical Christians, but we sure try to conquer Twitter and conferences and and, uh, and people and institutions. Uh, and that's just part of our DNA. Do you think there's significance to the language of crusades, Billy Graham's crusades, campus crusade for Christ? Was that simply a chosen metaphor or do you think it was coming out of that impulse? I think it was coming out of that that impulse. And those are words that, you know, they have one meaning when we study the crusades in medieval Europe and, and that meaning we sort of today recognize as bad. We think of it in a different way 
with a crusade, like a Billy Graham crusade, we do have a different association with it, but those associations really can't be separated. And so that's why I, I point out those examples. I don't think anyone in, you know, the middle of the 20th century when they were picking a name, you know, I don't think they were thinking, well, let's name this after, you know, the plunder that the medieval yeah. Christians did. But those words carry throughout our language. And even as they shift in meaning, they still carry that history with them. And it's not coincidental. We would use militaristic language like that to talk about our evangelistic efforts. Metaphors matter. That's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Well, it's you go through a whole series of metaphors and and story-making vehicles. And one of the chapters that I found particularly helpful was the section on testimony. And I, I just couldn't help but think of, I remember telling my grandmother one time when I was about to give my testimony to Congress about climate change or something. And I said, you know, pray for me. I'm giving my testimony tomorrow in the Senate Public Works Committee. And she said, you know, just remember this. Tell them my life before I met Jesus, how I met Jesus, my life after I've met Jesus, and that will cover everything. And I just said, okay, uh, but I don't think we're, we're thinking of testimony exactly this right the same way right now. But you talk about in this book about the necessity of heart change and storytelling and narrative in the way we think. Do you think that's still the case? In most congregations, there's not the same sort of time that I think there would have been earlier in American history where people stand up and actually give a testimony or has it just shifted to other ways? Hmm, that's that's a really good question. And again, I'm old enough that I went to churches where we did stand up and give testimonies yeah, or praises or whatever. And we may not do that as much anymore, but we still, there's an expectation that we're going to do that in our relationships or our friendships or in our evangelistic efforts. Or, or there's an expectation, even with one another, have a story like that. And that's kind of the point that I'm making is that... As human beings, and you point this out in your book, um, you have a great line in there about how, you know, we are really driven more by first by narrative before worldview. And that's really what I'm unpacking in my book is, you know, we are story driven creatures. And so we exist and think and live and process through stories and we love dramatic stories. I mean, I, I'm a literature professor. I love drama. Right. So but we don't often enough or intentionally enough think about how our natural immersion in stories and love for dramatic stories does not necessarily mean that our own most important story, our conversion story, needs to follow a certain formula, must follow a certain formula, must be dramatic in order to be legitimate. Those are sort of often assumed messages or or implied messages or unexamined assumptions that can alter what we believe about our own salvation or other people's testimonies because we carry this expectation that this formula is supposed to fit. Uh, and while it often does, it doesn't always and it doesn't have to. And we can give glory to God in the most mundane and ordinary of testimonies, whether they're given before Congress um, or, you know, to a family member or friend. You know, I highlighted and put amen uh, in my copy of the book when you talked about the irony of that sort of felt need for a dramatic conversion story 
and the emphasis on child conversion. Mm. Uh, I, I remember one time I was talking to a mutual uh, friend of ours and a, a whole group of us were there. And I said, you know, it, it's really common. My experience, I, I know many people who've done this, who've uh, prayed the sinner's prayer over and over and over again, just in case there wasn't enough sincerity the time before. And it can really be a, a tyranny over, over one's life. There's something that's really good about the dramatic conversion story mm -hmm. in order to say, hey, anybody can be received by Christ. Doesn't matter how far uh, gone, but without making that the default. Do you think there's a way to do that? Hmm. I talk about this in the book and think they, my publisher made a little meme about it, which is why it's on my mind. Um, but the Christian life should be full of testimonies, right? We, when we say, you know, share our testimony, it's shorthand for our salvation testimony, and that's fine. But even using that shorthand takes the focus off the testimony of how God works in our lives in every day and in the most mundane and ordinary ways. And there's drama in that. I mean, there is drama in the way that God has orchestrated my life the way he orchestrates my schedule, sometimes I just think, oh, when a meeting gets canceled and something else happens, I think, I just feel like the Lord did that. Now, I don't go around talking about that because people, you know, I don't know, it's boring or they would think I was weird. But if we are really in tune with or just close to the Lord and we see him working with us in our lives every day at this intimate, ordinary, everyday level, to me, that's really dramatic. And it will show up in our lives. So I think What's replaced, you know, we offer the evidence of our salvation through these stories when, in fact, the evidence of our salvation should be more known through the fruit of the Spirit. Mm. And we have a lot of people out there in the churches, in the pews, on the Internet, giving dramatic salvation testimonies. But I see a lot who do not evidence the fruit of the Spirit, and that is the most powerful testimony. So it's taking the whole of Scripture and the whole of what salvation means, not in a moment, but over the course of our lives. That really is dramatic, and maybe we're just not that good at sharing stories in that way because we're just not very good storytellers, and we don't read a lot of stories, but that's another matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned in the book that there's been a shift in the social imaginary when it comes to even what testimonies are about, mm -hmm. the testimony of improvement, and even now the testimony of disillusionment. What mm. What's the shift and, and where did that come from? Yeah, it was interesting because it was something that I observed and so something I sort of felt and knew. And then I just stumbled across, you know, a study showing this. And, and, and most of us know this. I mean, we, we've gone from a culture more broadly in which we want evidence that demands a verdict. And we want mm -hmm. instead evidence that shows the authenticity and the believability or credibility of the person giving the evidence. You even mm -hmm. had a line like that in your book that I noted because it was like we were writing the same thing. You talk about how Jesus had personal credibility. Mm -hmm. And that's what people are looking for with us. And I, you, you've, you've expressed this a number of ways in, in your writing and your speaking. Do we really believe what we say we believe when we don't live lives that demonstrate that, then our testimony isn't credible. And people aren't looking for scientific evidence necessarily or as often as they did in, you know, mid-modernity. They're looking for whether or not we really 
live like we believe what we say we do. Do you think that the rise of social media, the way that we have it, has changed that? I mean, there are, there are all kinds of people that I can't imagine having a hearing mm-hmm. in, in previous generations when what was expected is either not just necessarily some kind of holiness, but even in more carnal ways, some sort of uh, building of something. This person mm-hmm. built a great church or whatever. And now it seems to be who can say the most outrageous things. Did social media just kind of let us peer into that or has it changed? Yes. <laughs> I mean, again, I think there are at least two things going on here. And one thing that does give me more hope and perspective when I think about the worst elements of social media, and I, I do think about that a lot, <laughs> believe me, is <laughs> that, you know, there, there was a similar thing that happened during the rise of print culture. And when the printing press developed, first it was like, oh, well, let's print the Bible. And that was that was wonderful. And, and people could read the Bible for themselves. That, you know, changed the world. But also, like, women and vagabonds began writing and printing things. Like, people who didn't know much or weren't educated or people who would lie and deceive. And there was a lot of that going on. And that's actually what prompted John Milton to write his famous tract, Areopagitica, where he was arguing against his own Puritan government as a Puritan requiring licensing for anything to be printed. I mean, so these tensions existed before when all of a sudden the floodgates were open for anyone or at least more people to print things and say things who didn't have the kind of authority that the gatekeepers had before. And so we're living in a similar moment, but it's just like it's times 10 or times 100 or times 1,000. And if we look back at early print, readers and people had to learn how to use that new technology and that new information. They had to learn that Gulliver's Travels was satire. It wasn't true, right? And so I do think we're in a moment where we are learning how to use digital media. And those who are abusing it, I I know I'm too optimistic. Those who are abusing it, I think, may eventually fall by the wayside. It may take a generation or two, but I think that we, just as in print culture, we will eventually see far more blessings and gifts from it. And some of the curses we will will figure out and and learn to um, navigate better, I hope. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. I don't like John Bunyan. Uh, I, I, I like the I like the person of John Bunyan. I like the life of John Bunyan, but Pilgrim's Progress leaves me cold, and uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners even more so. And I I think because I've seen so many people who started reading some Puritan 
literature from that time period who became so morose and so introspective and, and believing there's no way they could really be a Christian. And all of the tests that they were giving to themselves, then they would test whether or not they had the objectivity to go through the tests, you know, all of that. That Puritan era, <laughs> I think, brought some things that just really creep me out. But you, you talk about in the book just how significant Pilgrim's Progress really was in terms of shaping everything around us, which I don't think I'd ever thought about before. I mean, I knew it was at one point the most popular uh, book other than the Bible, but I didn't really think about how the story actually changed the way we see yeah, no, and I, I, you know, I'm going to be completely honest here. I mean, The Pilgrim's Progress is kind of a drag to read. You know, my students love to hate it, and I love to teach it to try to, you know, <laughs> hate it with them and help them see it. And I'm so glad, actually, that I came to it as a student of literature more than a, a Christian. I mean, I was a Christian, but I approached it as literature. He luxuriated in his imagination. He let it sort of influence yeah. him and 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 lead him to the Lord, to the to the source of that imagination. And so, you know, 17th century literature is tough. You had a line I that just blew me away uh, because it's it resonates so much with me, uh, in which you said, talking about Bunyan, unbeknownst to him, Bunyan's imagination was being refashioned until that time when it was ready to conform to the gospel. And the reason that struck me is I have seen that so many times with people, and I've seen it with myself, where there are things that are sort of um, kind of approaching hoofbeats. You, you don't really know what's happening, but there's a a slow change, then in the fullness of time grows to something else. That really is a powerful insight. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people are closer to a mind change, whether a conversion in the Christian sense or, or just a mind change about something than people think, mm -hmm. because it's all internal and, and often God's doing something. I mean, that's just a, a really important insight, I think, in having the imagination to look into what might be going on in other people's lives. Mm. No, I'm glad you picked up on that because, again, as moderns and evangelicalism is a product of modernity, we live in modernity, even if it's late modernity, we just, again, tend to emphasize the rational mind and the evidence and, uh, and, and whether or not the Bible is scientifically true. And all those are good and interesting questions. But as moderns, we have failed to take enough account of aesthetic experience, the imagination, the heart, all of those things. I mean, many more thinkers and writers are addressing those now. And I, you know, this book is part of that. But that's where we where we are in this moment as we're seeing the limits of modernity. I think that's also why we're coming up against the limits of the evangelical movement, too, because it is so rooted in modernity, uh, which, again, it's, it's wonderful. I'm so thankful for so many gifts of modernity, but it's not everything. And, and that we need to see what it's missing and an emphasis on the imagination and aesthetic experience and the body um, is, is part of what's been missing. Do you think one of the reasons that imagination and, and at least conscious uh, metaphor that these things are so suspect to some evangelicals 
is the way that they were used by, for instance, modernist mainline Protestants uh, in the 19th and, and 20th centuries to resurrection is a, a beautiful metaphor mm. of uh, what's happening in, in one's heart. And so somebody can get up and preach the resurrection, but really they're just talking about existential experience. I think there are some people who, if they even start to engage at the level of imagination, start to think, oh, wait, Mm. that means that I'm no longer going to have a literal sense Mm. of what's really true. Do you think there's some people who have that's that's the obstacle they face? I think it is. And I touch on this a little bit in my chapter on rapture, where I talk about the rise of sort of the literal interpretation of the Bible, which was in the 19th century. And, and I think the the sort of um, mainline liberal Protestants that you were referring to in the 1950s might see the resurrection, I guess, or, or today too, might see the resurrection as a metaphor. They're responding in a counter swing to that literalism of the 19th century. They're going in one direction, but we've gone again in in the opposite direction. Um, And I think the truth is in more in the middle. I mean, what do we even mean by taking the Bible literally? You know, if if Adam knew Eve, as the Bible says, like which literal definition of new are we going with, right? I mean, that again, it's just human for us to respond to an excess in one direction with an excess in the opposite direction. And so I think when we're talking about language in the Bible um, and uh, and our understanding of, of what the Bible is teaching us and our faith, we need to recognize, as I said in the book, that all language is metaphorical, in some sense, and so then start looking at the layers of meaning and how those meanings accumulate, and something can be literally true and metaphorically true. And I think that the most important teachings um, of Christianity are are, are exactly that. I mean, Mm -hmm. Christ literally rose from the dead, and he did that so that we can metaphorically, in this life, conquer death too, and then through him literally as well. Mm. What would you say to the person who, I've seen this a lot, of people who, for instance, trying to teach the Bible, they don't know how to deal with parable or paradox or Psalms. They know how to deal with Pauline epistles and kind of translate everything into that. And sometimes I will have someone who will say, sometimes it's a future preacher, sometimes it's a uh, somebody who's a parent and trying to disciple kids or, or whatever, who says, you know, I don't have a well-shaped imagination and I feel like I'm kind of too late to to do that. So what would you recommend to that person? Hmm. Well, it's never too late. And I mean, there is such a rich um, array of resources um, now talking about reading the Bible as a literary text. So, so again, we can come at it from 
opposite directions. Um, we can begin with reading the Bible in that way or with like me. I mean, I just read a lot of literature in my life. So then when I approached the Bible, I kind of brought that knowledge with me. But but if, if people are just wanting to understand the Bible as literature, one name that comes up, Leland Riken. I mean, he's got his own library of mm. short and long and deep and wide books um, focused and broad that elucidate how the Bible works as a literary text and covers so many genres. You could read him alone for a long time and and receive a a college education in his books. But then another approach is simply to read more literature, to read some poetry, to read short stories, to read novels, and read them intentionally. You know, reading can be entertaining and fun, but there's also a kind of reading that Good literature does require us to think and engage and and with the text. I mean, it, I like to compare it to going to a museum. If you go to a museum and look at paintings, you don't race by and glance at them. You stop and you look and you just notice. And you don't even have to be schooled or trained in art to just be able to look at it and notice it and think about what it's emphasizing and what the brush strokes and the lights, what, what they're all doing and when we read a literary text, those are things that we want to think about. How does language work in this situation? How is this story having this effect? What does this word mean? Why is this word or this phrase so jarring? We are creatures of, of language. We are people of the book. Jesus is the word. We are supposed to think about language, use language, recognize its power, and steward it well in our lives. And there are so many ways to do that with the Bible and with other words. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Would you say to someone, I know what my answer uh, usually is, but I wonder if you would agree with me, and I think you might not, because I will sometimes say if somebody's trying to experience fiction or poetry or something uh, for the first time, maybe an author for the first time, my advice is, okay, I love Flannery O'Connor. If you don't, if it's, if it's not your thing, close Flannery O'Connor and read somebody else and, and move to somebody else. Not every, not every author speaks to everybody. But I know that there's an argument that could be made to say, no, um, if you stick with the text and you do the work, then you're actually going to get the benefit from it. Well, which of those is the best approach? Russell, yours is. Yours is the best. Yes, it is. Because there's so much good literature out there. Like, why stick with something that just isn't your cup of tea or you don't get or it doesn't get you when there's so much more out there? There's so much good literature. I haven't read a tiny fraction of it. 
you know, there good literature does make a demand on us. So we are going yeah. to have to at some point stick with it. It's not the same thing as, as reading an email or reading Twitter or reading Facebook, but certainly it should be something that pulls us, draws us, that, you know, at least is a topic that's that interests us or a style. Uh, Flannery O'Connor is not everyone's cup of tea. And I would never force Flannery O'Connor on anyone except for my college sophomores. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's right. I was blown away because I never knew this. Uh, I've been familiar with Thomas Kincaid all my life, I think, but I never knew this almost Flannery O'Connor like story about the painter of light, Thomas Kincaid. And as I was reading your talking through that, I was thinking to myself, what, what, a, what a metaphor and parable mm. even this is uh, for, what, uh, for what we've seen over the past several years. Tell listeners what, uh, mm. what the life of Thomas Kincaid, and, and maybe for those who've never seen Thomas Kincaid, explain what it is and why yeah. Christians tend to okay. like it. All right, well, if you do know Thomas Kincaid, and, and not very much, then what you know is that he is called the painter of light. And even if you don't know him, when I describe him, you will know. Because you can get greeting cards and calendars and all these things. So his paintings tend to be of cozy cottages with a well-lit window and little gardens outside and bridges and they're very cozy and suffused with light or surrounded by light. And his products are everywhere, stores different iterations of his paintings and so forth. And people find his work very comforting, and uh, which, is, which is really the, the point, very sentimental. That's just where the chapter where I begin talking about him is on sentimentality. But what a lot of people don't know is that Kincaid started out as a very talented painter and that you can find some of his early work online and, and you could I think you can still find it. And it's a very different style. It's not totally different, but it's more artistic, less commercial, um, shows a lot of talent. But eventually he fell into like making a lot of money through creating these sentimental works of art that were produced basically in a factory by hundreds of workers in his kind of assembly line and sold a lot. And then eventually, it, it was in his late 40s or 50s, uh, he just ended up, you know, having some trouble with the law, being accused of sexual harassment, being arrested for public urination while drunk, whatever that charge is, and he he died. And it's a very sad story, but the metaphor that you just alluded to and the reason why I talk about it because I I'm criticizing sentimental art, <laughs> but I'm also trying to make the point that an overly sentimental faith, overly sentimental life or outlook is a lie. And you can only live a lie or believe a lie for so long before it kind of comes out of the other side. You know, it's like a balloon. Mm. If you squeeze it too hard on one end, it will burst on the other end. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we see in evangelicalism in many areas. And in the Victorian age, where I kind of center it, the Victorian age, which was known for its family values, for its elevation of women, for its thrift and duty, um, also had an extremely high prostitution rate in London, mm. because you just can't keep up that facade for very long without it kind of 
you know, coming out the other side. Um, and so one extreme will automatically eventually lead to another extreme, which is why balance and honesty and truth and goodness and beauty are so important. Yeah. You know, as I'm thinking about uh, Kincaid, and, and you mentioned later on, I think it was Jerry Falwell, to whom you were a senior, about the irony of being a word-based people, but having a team of ghostwriters, which was certainly not uh, exclusive to him, nor is it now in a lot of cases. But when you think about that sentimentality and the way that it has, has led us in these directions, I mean, how do we come back from that without squeezing the balloon on the other mm -hmm. side? There was a time when I thought the problem with evangelical Christianity is too much of a focus on subjective experience mm -hmm. without uh, rooted theology. And I looked at a lot of the places that were recovering theology and intellect and rootedness, and in the fullness of time, saw all the same problems except angrier. Uh, and, and in ways that often seemed very dead and, and spiritually cold. So how do we get that balance when it comes to that? Well, that, that is the question. And this is really what, this is what virtue is, which is a kind of side hobby of my vir virtue ethics. Virtue is that moderation between an excess and a deficiency, just finding that, that golden mean between those two polar opposites. And the virtuous person does this in all areas and in, with all attributes and in all situations. And none of us, you know, I mean, Jesus did that. I mean, if you think of what the cross is, you know, structurally, the form of the cross is exactly that, right? Like we use that expression, like the crux or the crux of the matter. Jesus was like literally and metaphorically in the center, which is what mm -hmm. virtue is. And you know, it uh, goes against our human nature to do that. Uh, it's so much easier to go to an extreme and to overcorrect. And by the way, I always teach this to my students when I talk about virtue and 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 human history, which is a history of pendulum swings from one extreme to another. The most common cause of, of fatal car accidents in young people, for a time anyway, I don't know if that's changed since the pandemic, but is overcorrection. Like mm. if your car starts to go off the road, it's the overcorrection that causes the fatality. And that's such a perfect metaphor for our human nature because the Protestant Reformation, which I, I love, I'm Protestant, right, <laughs> was a correction of the abuses and excesses of the church. And that's the history we have that does minimize the imagination and minimize aesthetic experience. But if we overcorrect, then we're missing something. And so we just have to constantly look for it and, and fight against it in our individual lives, but also in our communities, our churches, and our, you know, in our movements. You know, this is a movement that's 300 years long, and it has some excesses, um, and they need to be corrected, whether it's too late to or not, I don't know, but as long as we're in it and able, we should be trying to correct them. Hmm. You know, you and I have seen a lot uh, over the past several years, uh, and experienced a lot over the past several years. And sometimes I will, I will imagine telling my younger self some things that I've learned or, or, or seen just to imagine 
how that would be received <laughs> in, in that naive sort of state. If you were talking to Karen Swallow Pryor of, say, 10 years ago, what would you tell her? <laughs> wow. I would tell the Karen Swallow Pryor of a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> Not to trust in uh, humans so much. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, I can be a little Pollyanna and naive, I guess, and a little too optimistic, as I said before. Of 10 years ago, hmm. actually, I'm, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to, you said something in your book that I put a star by. And this really resonated with me. You said you were at a church, I guess, and somebody came up to you and said, one day you will see that it's really about power and career advancement and opportunism. You think that these people are a community for you, but you will find that the second you are no longer useful to them, they will do the same thing to you that they are now doing to us. Yeah. And if someone had said that to me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed them. And I would tell myself 10 years ago, at least consider it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and how how would you advise somebody who maybe didn't have the backgrounds that you and I had in different ways? I think your really good childhood situation prepared you and my crisis time uh, in adolescence, I think, prepared me that neither of us uh, lost the faith with some of the things we've seen. But what about the that 22-year-old who is saying, I look around at all of this anger and hatred and division within evangelical Christianity, and who needs it? Mm -hmm. who, who, who needs it? What would you advise that person? Mm -hmm. I would tell that person to, I mean, it, it's so cliche and it's kind of how I close my book, but it's, you know, look to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Just follow Jesus. Um, I, I do, I want to tell this slightly funny anecdote. Recently, I saw someone tweet that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that saying follow the way of Jesus is just code for liberal progressive Christianity. And I saw, oh I saw that tweet and I, I thought, oh, that's really funny satire. And then I went and I looked at the feed and it wasn't satire. Ugh. And I, that was actually, a, that, that's like a little benchmark for me because yeah. I realize now that there are people who are literally saying that to follow Jesus is not Christianity. Yeah. That's what they're saying. And so I, you know, I would go into it deeper. I would say it's not just Jesus and me because that's been part of the problem, right? So, mm -hmm. so look to Jesus, follow Jesus and, and, and listen to what Jesus says about community and the church. Um, but you have to start with him and end with him. Again, the historical perspective helps me. I mean, the church has been through this fracturing before, and I do believe that this fracturing we're going through right now is going to lead to something more beautiful um, and more biblical and more holy and more Christ-like. I don't know if I'll, I will live to see the end of it, but I just want to be found faithful at the end, whatever that might be, for the next generations. And so I would tell those young people to look to Jesus and to look to those who are 
like him. And the rest is just this historical moment, this cultural crisis that we're in. And others have been through worse ones and others will be in, you know, through ones worse than ours. It's just the moment that we're in. But Jesus remains the same yesterday, today and forever. I would say amen to that with only one uh, revision, which is to say sometimes it can feel like just Jesus and me for a little while. Uh, and, and if that's somebody in that situation, that's, that's happened before. I mean, Elijah thought he was alone and, and there was a community waiting for him. So don't Mm. give up. I, I, I accept that revision a plus. I think that's right. (laughs) That's a good, that's a good reminder. The book is called The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. This is a really good book, and it will help you see and understand all kinds of things going on around you. We we did not even get into a little bit of, of what all you will find in this book. So I encourage you to, to get a copy of it. Karen Swallow Pryor, it's always good and thought-provoking to talk to you. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. It is always a good time when there's a Moore family reunion. And by that, I mean Beth Moore. And uh, I am really looking forward to an event that's coming up around the launch of my new book, uh, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. Beth Moore, my friend, my sister, who in almost every citation of us, it says no relation, but there's lots of relation in Christ. She is hosting an evening of conversation, two of us, on Wednesday, August the 9th at 7 p.m. in her hometown of Houston, Texas. And so I'll be there physically live with Beth, and you can join us in Houston or via live stream on CT's YouTube channel. And for more details, you can head over to russellmore.com forward slash events, and you can see how you can be a part. It's going to be a really good time, lots of laughter, lots of questions. And so come join us and hope you'll grab your copy of the book too. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore, produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry and Azaray Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.